We got up early this morning and got on the road from Punxsutawney to drive to Erie, and it was a gorgeous sunrise. And uh, uh, I don't know if I've had a prettier trip coming to Erie. Um, but before we came to the church, um, we, we drove past down to the stop sign, took a right, and we went to the cemetery before the red light. Um, five years ago, my mother died today, and so we stopped at her grave. I just want to ask you, as we gather this morning, it's very likely in a crowd this size that there are those that are carrying burdens, there are those that are grieving, there are those that have struggles and concerns. Could we just take a minute in the midst of our service? And if that's you, would you just stand where you are? And I want to just lead us in prayer, asking God to meet the need that you find in your soul this morning as you come into the house of the Lord. So if you would like prayer, would you just stand up where you're at? You're not going to come forward. Just stand where you're at, and we will pray together. Let's join our hearts together. Lord, you are the God of all compassion. The scriptures tell us that Jesus, you yourself wept in your own grief. Lord, each that are standing in your presence, they represent something very heavy on their hearts. And Lord, you who know all things, you know the need that they have. And Lord, out of your grace, out of your kindness, out of your compassion, would you meet every need this morning? Lord, we ask you in faith because we agree with the scriptures. Where else would we go except to you? And so, Lord, those of us that are standing, we lay at your feet the concern that we have. And, Lord, we say, would you deal rightly in this situation? And, Lord, give peace to each person as you work. Lord, strengthen their confidence and assurance in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, that which they've committed to you, you will deal rightly with because you're good and you're kind. So, Lord, I pray for each person standing in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Um, If we could bring up the slides on the, the screen... And let's go with the lead slide. Today is, as Pastor Scott said, we're focusing on Great Commission Sunday. Now, in the Alliance, we say Great Commission Sunday, but we're actually talking about a period of Sundays where we're giving specific attention to the Great Commission. Let's go to the next one. And when we think about the Great Commission, we think about all of Jesus for all the world. And it's that which bursts out of our experience with Christ. 
that which we've received in his sovereignty, he never intends it for the blessing to stop with us, but for us to be a conduit and a testimony to others of what Jesus has done in our own life. Uh, Let's go to the next slide. There has been a question that has motivated the alliance for decades. And the way we often speak of it, we talk about unreached peoples. And what we mean by unreached peoples, it is those peoples in the world who have not a gospel witness in their language, culture, and worldview. So in other words, they don't have access to the gospel in their setting. Interestingly, uh, those that have looked at missions, they have found that most people come to faith in Christ when barriers are removed. And the most significant barriers tend to be language, culture, and worldview. And so that's why our 700 international workers with the alliance that are placed throughout the world, language study, cultural acquisition is a top priority. So when uh, Marcia and I went overseas, um, the country where we were serving, even though there were 300 people groups in that in the borders of that country. There were more than 700 languages that were spoken. But we studied the, f- the first year that we were there, full-time, every day, we studied the national language. Then after we did that, a few years later, we tried studying a couple of different dialects depending on where we were living. Because most people in that country could speak at least three different languages. Now, in the U.S., you know, we always will hear the jokes on television about, oh, you know, speak English. But most of the global population are amazingly language proficient and speak several languages. And there's nothing as sweet as hearing something in your own language. And so this issue of unreached peoples, this is the task that, as the alliance, we feel that's before us. Let's go to the next slide. There is a renewed unreached people group orientation in the alliance. And it's it's been in missions primarily for decades. But the question I have is, is it something that's kind of old and no longer critical, or is it something that still is mission central for us in the alliance? Well, we have a very strong conviction that um, the old news is the good news, and that has to be taken to people that don't know Jesus Christ. So let's just look for a minute through a couple of graphics of what kind of a context the world finds itself in today. Now, 
This is uh, some graphics that you can find online out of the Joshua Project. That's a a great site to go to. Um, But this gives you a snapshot of where the world's Christians are in today's world. About a third of the world would identify as followers of Jesus. So what's clear is that the good news has spread around the world, but it's clearly not evenly distributed because we see most believers are going to be Latin America, North America, Europe, and non-Muslim Africa. Let's go to the next one. Now, if we look at in the context where those 33% believers live, we're layering in now this layer of non-believers. So you can see that there are significant populations of those that don't know Jesus where believers are present. And so that gives you and I the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to see men and women come to know him as their Lord and Savior. So in looking at this one, 40% of all believer, of all non-believers have many Christians within their own setting. And so that would define how you and I live in the United States, how you and I live here in Erie. That while there are a number of followers of Jesus Christ, there's also a significant number of people in our area that don't know Christ. So a term that I've used that's helped me, how do I see people like this? How do I speak about people like this? I just like to call them my near neighbors. Here are the neighbors near me that don't know Jesus Christ. And they are neighbors that I'm empowered to share the good news of Jesus Christ in some form. You know, part of this statistic is significant because of the movement of people. They say today that 300 million people live in a place which is not where they were born. Can you imagine that? I talked to a guy some time back, and I said, so tell me about yourself, where do you live? He says, I bought the house right next to where I was raised. I mean, the guy was probably 63 years old. He moved one house in 63 years. And and yet 300 people live in a different country than where they were born. There is a movement of people today that, that gives endless opportunities to the good news of Jesus Christ. I love hearing the story about the ministry of FAC with English as a second language and to hear how you as a church have been reaching out to groups that are not born in Erie and yet you are building friendships and building relationships by which the love of Jesus can flow. Praise the Lord for those things. Do you know that when we look at, um, oh, let's go to the next slide. Let's go to the next slide. 
So if the previous slide was near neighbor, uh, so just as a map, when we look at those workers of the alliance, 80%, so 8 out of 10 of our workers are in these underserved, less reached, unreached people groups. So when we look at sending workers, this is the place where we send them. And so when we talk about an unreached people group, we're really looking at a population where less than 2% have any idea of who Jesus is. And that's really staggering, isn't it? That there could be a population that haven't any knowledge of Jesus Christ. So if the previous slide was our near neighbors, the next slide is going to talk about our far neighbors. So these are non-believers living in unreached people groups. So 60% of the global population, three and a half billion, have few followers of Jesus in their own group. And so that goes as far as saying, There's not radio broadcasts, there's not relevant literature, there is not people that live in the neighborhood that speak the language, that understand the culture, and know how to communicate the good news in the way that culture thinks. And it's staggering to see the remaining task that is before the church. Let's go forward two slides. Okay, uh, that second that slide's not there. Let's just talk for a minute about overlooked opportunities. So if we have near neighbors and we have far neighbors, what are the opportunities that we don't see? Well, the Alliance has identified many. It is looking to see and serve populations that are all around us. Um, I've, I'm in my uh, sixth year as district superintendent of our, uh, of our district. And I travel about 2,000 miles a month. But I can remember when I discovered that in the city of Pittsburgh, there are 27,000 Spanish-speaking people that live in Pittsburgh. I was unaware that there's 27,000 first-language Spanish-speaking peoples. We have no intentional gospel witness to Spanish-speaking people in Pittsburgh. It was a missed opportunity. And so when we discovered that, we started to pray about it. And we said, God, don't pass us by. We want to be a part of what you're doing. We know you're at work. And so we've been praying for years. And in the next few weeks, I'm meeting with an evangelist who's Spanish-speaking. And we're discerning, does God have a partnership for us? to give us opportunity to start to reach out effectively to those that speak a language that I don't speak in the city of Pittsburgh, near 
neighbors, but it was an overlooked responsibility. Do you know what else the Alliance has discovered? That there in the United, there are more than 43 million blind people. There are 400 million deaf people. There are 685 global uh, million that are in extreme poverty. And we don't know what to do. I remember when uh, I drove by and I saw a sign that said, one out of five kids in Pennsylvania go to bed hungry. I said, impossible. One out of five kids in Pennsylvania goes to bed hungry? So I started to do a little research. And let's just talk locally for a minute. Do you know that in the city of Erie, one in four people live below the poverty level? One in four. So what that means is, is that if there was a single mom that had two kids, after she paid her taxes and after she paid her rent, that single mom has $200 a week to buy food for her kids, to buy clothes for her kids, to pay all her utilities, and to pay for her transportation to get to work. 200 bucks. One in four in the city of Erie. Do you know that the city mission The Erie City Mission is located in the poorest zip code in the entire state of Pennsylvania, where it's at, in downtown Erie. Of those one of four who live in poverty in the city, 45% of them are women. It's staggering when you look at that 18 years old and younger in Erie, about 37% live in poverty. So our kids, if your kids are in school in Erie, one out of three is with another kid that lives in poverty. When you go to infants up to five years old, it goes up to 44%. That's an overlooked opportunity. Because a lot of times, particularly for the church, when it comes to dealing with the, the poor, somehow the gospel all of a sudden starts to shift in our thinking. And we start to look at people and say, ah, you know, you really could do better if you wanted to. Uh, you know, you're here because, you know, we're a real strong welfare state, welfare city. You're benefiting from it. You know, in fact, my job is paying for what you get. And all of a sudden, do you hear it? I'm now the victim. And that poor person is the abuser. 
I have found that I have found that it's almost impossible to share the love of Jesus with somebody I resent. I find that my my own feelings, if I don't like somebody, I don't want to see them come close to Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit deals with my own heart and says, you are a stumbling block for those that I died for because you want to judge them and say they're not worthy. And yet Jesus, when he saw the poor, he didn't ignore the poor. But in our culture and within church culture, we often get tripped up on how does the gospel minister in the context of the poor. In 2004, in Southeast Asia, there was an earthquake. And after that earthquake was a tsunami. It happened on December 26th. Um, In literally a few minutes, a quarter of a million people died. Now, in the place where we were, this was kind of like where that happened. It was an area where we didn't have mission presence. There was lots of reasons for that, but because of the sheer immenseness of this tragedy, there were NGOs, relief agencies, that were able to get in and to help out. I learned so much about bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. And what we were doing, we were giving water. We were helping with food. We were helping to build shelter. We were helping to rebuild boats so that men could find a type of an employment again. I remember that as the Alliance, we had collected nearly $2 million for that disaster. And through comma services, one of the expressions of the Alliance, our compassion and relief arm. Um, those funds were given to those that were on the ground working. And one of the projects was, uh, so where a lot of the, um, uh, this one community, I mean, no kidding, it was a community of 10,000 people. It, they would use the word, they would say it was like somebody took a broom and they swept the community off the map. From the air when they would take pictures, there was just nothing there. Was smooth ground, a village of 10,000 people. But as those that survived came back and we were building these boats to help people to get back to work again, they said, listen, it's not enough just that we have a boat and that we can catch fish, but we have to have a place to hold the fish until we can sell it. So there was this proposal given to Kama where um, we were going to build an, an ice factory so that the the fish could be put on ice. Well, this project, just this one project, was $50,000. I mean, in the overseas context, that was a huge gift. And so we did. Kama helped build this 
wonderful ice manufacturing place. And it helped a lot of people. The man that we were working with, this local man, he said, you know, this is a lot harder than we predicted. It's taking a lot longer for the devastation was just so so vast. It's taking longer for the community to rebuild itself. And he said, I can't repay the $50,000. And I remember the comma worker that was there. And he was talking with the executive director. And that guy, he said, I feel the responsibility, you know, because we'd made an agreement that we'd be advancing the money and this guy would pay it back because we wanted to actually help him with a business. And I remember this conversation with, it's okay. God knew this. God knew in his sovereignty that this man was not going to be able to pay it back. He allowed us to help build this out of money people had given. He said, we will bless this man with this factory with no repayment. And I remembered struggling with that. I said, is this fair? Is this right? You know, people gave their money. I mean, if it was a loan, shouldn't it have been repaid? But I learned something in watching these alliance leaders interact, that there was a strong awareness that the hand of God is at work. And even in circumstances, particularly working with the poor, with those that are neglected in situations that don't always make sense. God isn't moved off of his sovereign working in those situations. I want you to know that from that time, almost 18 years later, We've had gospel presence in that area where we never had it before. That unreached people groom to have witness of the love of Jesus Christ. And it was done through deed. And I was reminded again, yes, we have to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, we bear witness. Yes, we tell people about Jesus but we live it out in our life. We live it out in our interactions. We live it out in our relationships and we live it out in our generosity. Jesus told a story and he said in that story, he said there was a landowner. That landowner had gone out And he was looking for workers to get in his field. And as he went out, he had gone to the place where workers gather. And he said he went there at nine in the morning. He said, look, I want you to come and work in my fields and I'm going to pay you this much. He went back later in the day. He got more workers. He went back again later on in the day. And there were still people there. And the landowner said, why aren't you working? Why are you still here? And they said, no one's hired us. He said, go, work. At the end of the day, in the story Jesus tells, 
the landowner paid everybody their wages. He gave them all a day's wage. And it didn't take long that those that were hired early in the day all of a sudden showed how they were offended. Wait a second. We've been working since nine in the morning and here's some guy comes on. He's only worked an hour. He's getting the same pay. And Jesus says, the landowner says, listen, I've, I've done what I've said I would do with you. Do I not have the right to be generous? Do I not have the right to pay this man who worked an hour? The generosity of Jesus blows us away because we want to look at that and say, no, no, no. The guy that worked from nine to six, he should be making more than the guy that worked from five to six. But Jesus said, no, you don't know my heart. You don't know how generous I am. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, when we think about Great Commission Sunday, there's two areas that we don't want to fail in. Two areas that we don't want to fail in. We don't want to fail in doing what needs to be done. We don't want to fail in personal evangelism and service to the vulnerable and the poor. So we we don't want to fail in that. Interestingly, any survey that's been done of people that attend church, the statistic is consistent that most people that call themselves Christians do not share their faith. They don't evangelize. They don't tell someone else about Jesus. So it is significant when we say we don't want to fail in what needs to be done. That proclamation of the good news, yes, we send workers to our far neighbors, but Christ has placed you and I to reach our near neighbors. Christ may be calling you and I to go to our far neighbors, but we don't want to fail in what needs to be done, which is telling others about Jesus Christ. Let's prioritize the non-church. Let's prioritize non-believers. There are those that don't know Jesus Christ. When we think about sharing our faith, let's be intentional in building those friendships. You know, when we talk about evangelism, lots of times we just get really squirmish. We get nervous. We start to think about, no, I'm not that good. I get tongue-tied. Do you know that most people come to faith in Jesus Christ from the ages of 4 to 14? Kids. Young people. Junior highs. Most people, when Christians have been surveyed, 
when did you become a follower of Jesus? Most say it's from when I was four to 14. I hope all of us just take a big, deep sigh and say, wait a second. I can talk to somebody four to 14 about Jesus. I don't need to be intimidated about a child, about a junior high. But sometimes we are. Let's not fail at personal evangelism. Secondly, let's not fail at changing what needs to be changed so that we can get the task finished. pastor by the name of James White, he poses the question. He says, why don't we change? And whenever we ask that question, it's a hard question because all of a sudden we're going to have to look at our own heart. And we have to be willing to say, why don't I want to change? Now, yes, there are two ways to look at this. We look at it one institutionally. I mean, in our district, we have some churches that are more than 130 years old. And it's very easy to say, hey, we do things this way. We do it for those of us that are here, for those outside the walls of our church. They're a distant second concern of ours. We're the primary concern. But does that align with what Jesus' heart is? And so we don't want to fail to change what may need to change. So the evangelization of those that don't know Jesus Christ is a top priority for our church. When I was a young person, um, for many years I I grew up in this church. I I noticed uh, as we were driving to the seminary, or seminary, the cemetery, um, a couple properties down, somebody selling 32 acres. $1.2 million is what's on the sign. Back in the early 70s, when this congregation met down in 11th Street in downtown Erie, 32 acres were purchased out here. For about sixty-four, sixty-five thousand dollars, God, in His kindness, He works on behalf of His people, but He does it for a purpose. Out of the influence, not only of other congregations, but this one on my own life, when I graduated uh, in nineteen seventy-eight. Um, I went to Asbury College. That's where Marcia and I met. And while we were there, Dennis Kinlaw was the president of the school. Uh, Dennis Kinlaw actually was on the board of what was called OMS. There were a number of mission groups that were on the campus, and OMS was one of those. During our time there, I had met a businessman. And this businessman tells the story of where he met Letty Coleman, or Cowman. Now, Letty Cowman 
She um, was the author, or she is the author of the book Streams in the Desert. And it's one of the most influential devotional books ever written. But he tells the story of where Letty Cowman uh, tells him, can I tell you how the Lord got hold of my life? She says that she and her husband, they were young people growing up in Chicago. This is back at the turn of the century. He was a young executive with Western Union. Uh, Letty says that she attended a Methodist church revival and she found Jesus as her savior. She came home and tried to witness to her husband, but he would have nothing to do with it. One night he agreed to go with her to church and when he came home, he got on his knees and he received Jesus as his Lord and savior. Letty said that when my husband found Christ, a great hunger developed with him to serve Jesus Christ. So Letty goes on in her story. She says, one Friday, we were going past Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, and there was a sign out front. It said, Missionary Convention, A.B. Simpson speaking. Now she says, neither one of us had ever been to a missionary conference. This was the first time we even heard of one. So Charlie said to Letty, let's go to the conference. And so they did. And they discovered that A.B. Simpson had a hunger in his heart. And it was a hunger that came from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit transformed his heart and missions became his passion. He said, we heard a sermon like no other sermon we'd heard before. But yet, when he finished the sermon, he came to the pulpit once again. Simpson said, now we must take an offering. And Simpson said, the offering is going to be different because when the collection plates come, you'll notice that they're full instead of empty. They're full of watches. Now, they're not gold watches, but they're good watches. And Simpson said, if you have a gold watch, if you'll put yours in the plate and take one of the others out, we'll sell those gold watches so that the gospel can be carried around the world. Letty said, I've never seen anything like that before. Here came the plate. It was full of watches. The person handed it to me, and I handed it straight to Charlie. And she said, Charlie took the plate with his left hand, and with his right hand, he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out the gold watch that I had worked and saved months for to buy him. And he put that watch in the plate. I turned and looked at him and I said, I gave you that watch. But the plate was gone. She said, A.B. Simpson came back to the pulpit and said, now we must take a second offering. This time you'll notice that the plates are empty. Simpson said, there's a lot of us who wear more jewelry than necessary. And if you will take some of that jewelry that you don't necessarily need and put it in the plate, we will sell it and send the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. She said, here came the plate, and I handed it to Charlie. He took it with his left hand, and with his right hand, he reached over and took my hand, and he pulled my engagement ring off, and he put it in the plate. 
I turned to him and said, you gave me that. But the plate was gone. Letty went on telling her story. She said, Simpson came back to the pulpit a third time and he said, we're going to take another offering. And this time we're going to take a money offering. Letty said, it was Friday. That means it was payday. And my husband had in his pocket the pay for two weeks. She said, when that plate came, Charlie reached in his pocket, he pulled it out and he put the entire amount in the plate. I looked at Charlie and said, Charlie, what are we going to live on for the next two weeks? But the plate was gone. Simpson came back a fourth time and said, now we must take the real offering. We must take the offering of life because there are people here who need to give themselves wholly to God. So he can do with them as he pleases. Send them where he will. And if that's you, Simpson said, I want you to stand. And she said, to my horror, Charlie, my husband stood up. The most decisive moment in my life came because I knew Charlie well enough that if he committed to something, he was not going to turn back and he was going to do it. And she said, I didn't want to live alone, so I stood up too. (laughs) She concluded the story by saying, our whole lives have been so different because of that moment. Letty and Charlie, soon after that service in Chicago, they moved to Southeast Asia. They spent nearly 17 years ministering in Japan. As a result of their ministry, they formed the the Oriental Mission Society, OMS. That society to which Kinlaw was a board member that society to which this businessman had been giving and supporting. You know, even though this story goes back a hundred years, there was just a change in presidents in OMS. The previous president that stepped down was a former alliance worker from Africa. And you see the thread. And you see the influence of the gospel. And you see how when people say yes to Jesus, everything changes. I told Pastor Scott, maybe next week we ought to have a table up here with some offering plates and say we're going to do some jewelry offering. And I said to myself, I wonder, would I? Would I put it in for the sake of the gospel? Yes. The scriptures tell us that all of God's promises are yes. 
And when he calls, your response, you're going to find a faithful God leading and guiding you when you say yes as he speaks to your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are uh, in a way moved to read this story, which is so old. And yet, Lord, what, um, what the Spirit says to us through the retelling of the story is that you still call and you still work and you still raise up a people that you invite to be participants in your mission. And Lord, you're at work in this church. You're in work in this community through your people. Lord, we don't want to be passed by. Lord, we want to have the joy of telling somebody about Jesus. We want to have the joy of leading a young person, a child, an adult to Jesus Christ. Lord, what we read about in the scriptures, we want to experience in our day-to-day life. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Fall afresh upon us this morning. Lord, and though there's not going to be four offerings, Lord, we do want to bow in your presence. And Lord, whatever you're saying to us, We want to say yes to you. In Christ's name, amen.